electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Bring in show music, please. This is Squawk Pod. I'm CNBC producer Claire Odimodi. Today on our podcast, COVID and Christmas. We talk to White House Chief Medical Advisor Dr. Anthony Fauci as new cases climb. We're having a rather substantial increase in percentage of the new Omicron variant, which has the unfortunate capability of spreading very, very efficiently. Dr. Fauci on the new CDC booster recommendations and he cautions against Omicron assumptions. Even though you have a less of a percentage of people who would get hospitalized, when you have a larger number of people getting infected, the total amount of hospitalizations is going to be more. And that's just simple math. Plus, e-commerce a boon for FedEx at the holidays and a major change in the legal battles against the makers of OxyContin. It's Friday, December 17th, 2021. Squawk Pod begins right now. Stand back, you buy in three, two, one, cue please. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. I'm Becky Quick, along with Joe Kernan and Andrew Ross Sorkin. We're going to uh, give you an update right now on what is becoming a massive surge of COVID in New York and New Jersey. From December 9 to December 12, the percentage of positive tests in New York City spiked from 3.9 percent to 7.8 percent. CDC data shows that 13.1 percent of cases in the region that includes New York and New Jersey are Omicron. That compares with the national average of just 2.9 percent. But uh, it is raising lots of questions among businesses, uh, many of which are now uh, sending employees home and the like. Separately, the CDC recommending that Pfizer and Moderna's COVID vaccine uh, should be used over J&Js for adults. This after finding that 54 people developed a rare blood clot condition. All those patients were hospitalized. Nine died. In a statement last night, CDC said that the U.S. has an abundant supply of Pfizer and Moderna vaccines and Americans should use those when possible. Those who are unwilling or unable to receive an mRNA vaccine will still have access to the J&J vaccine. The U.S. has administered more than 17 million J&J doses since the emergency use authorization was approved in February. And in just a little bit, just in moments, actually, Dr. Anthony Fauci is going to join us live right here. We're going to talk all about this surge. Uh, If we thought what was happening in South Africa and Europe was not going to happen here, uh, we have been mistaken uh, because it is happening here and maybe even more so. Shares of FedEx, the Dow Transport are higher. Earnings and revenue both beat estimates. The company announced a $5 billion buyback program as well. Also reinstated its original forecasts for 2022. That's something you don't hear every day. It had lowered it back in September. Now it's back on track. FedEx said it incurred $470 million in added expenses during the quarter for things including higher staff wages, overtime, and those cost increases uh, mostly centered in its ground division. And it delivers e-commerce orders, as you know, probably to homes. Company said it expects the labor shortages to subside. It recently fielded 111,000 job applications in one week 
for hourly positions. Yeah, I know it well. I know the ground division because it's at my house pretty often, you know, with those they deliveries UPS. from e-commerce. They, they all come. They, they do. all come. Love them all. It, and, yeah, well, they all get run out. Run out. Of, they're, they're, they, like, drop it and run <laughs> uh, from because there's a... There's a lot to do. That's why. Well, no, there's a couple of no, there's a couple of animals that if they got out, oh, I don't know what might happen. Boss. I was going to say I had a, a nice really conversation did. with my guy. Yesterday. And they don't understand when they leave, the two dogs think, "See, we bad." <laughs> they, they, they're like, they're, then they're going to do it next time because they think it works. So somebody right? needs to stand up to those dogs and show them who's who. Yeah, yeah. And, and come in the Not house me. and say, no, "Back off!" Right? Yeah, no, no, thank you. No, we don't want that. We like it the way it is. Next on SquawkPod. COVID and Christmas, COVID and travel. Would you jump on an airplane? I'm sort of locked in here in Washington, D.C., so I have no intention of getting on a plane. The nation's top infectious disease doctor, Anthony Fauci, in a special interview when we come back. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. You're listening to Squawk Pod from CNBC. The spread of the COVID-19 Omicron variant is picking up speed in the United States. In New York City's broader tri-state area, the startling rise in the rate of positive tests is spooking everyone. Some estimates see a 20 or 30 percent positivity rate locally by Christmas. Dr. Anthony Fauci is the head of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, as well as the chief medical advisor to the president. And he joined our Squawk Box TV broadcast this morning. Joe Kernan, Becky Quick and Andrew Rossokin asked Dr. Fauci about holiday gatherings during this surge of infection, the definition of fully vaccinated, two shots or three, what brand is preferred, and how Omicron is spooking employers, hoping to welcome waves of remote workers back to the office. Andrew kicks things off. Do you believe that businesses should be bringing workers into the office place? And what do you do about um, environments where people can't wear masks, restaurants and the like? Well, those are difficult situations. First of all, you're right. We are having a surge, both a Delta surge, the Delta variant, but also we're having a rather substantial increase in percentage of the new Omicron variant, which has the unfortunate capability of spreading very, very efficiently with a doubling time of about three days. So the recommendations are what we've always said. I mean, we've got to get the unvaccinated people vaccinated and boosters really help 
very, very much in protecting you against infection, but particularly against severe disease that might lead to hospitalization. So the recommendations in general, if you're vaccinated and not yet boosted, go get boosted. And with regard to just how you go about your daily life, you've got to abide by the recommendations of the CDC that when you are in an indoor setting, that's a congregate setting where you do not know the status of vaccination of the people around you to wear a mask in that indoor setting. That's the best we can do. Unfortunately, we have so many people in this country who are either not yet vaccinated at all or who have not gotten boosted. And we've got to get those people vaccinated. Doctor, but given the breakthrough cases and what we've seen about the lack of efficacy uh, without the booster, at least, do you think the CDC at this point uh, should reclassify the definition of what it means to be fully vaccinated? I ask because, as you know, many restaurants and public spaces uh, in many parts of the country, as long as you're, quote, fully vaccinated, you can be indoors without a mask and what kind of message that sends and what the health implications of that are. Well, that's certainly on the table. Right now, it it is a bit of semantics in that fully vaccinated for the purpose of the regulations and requirements that people have as to be what are you considered as being fully vaccinated. But there's no doubt that optimum vaccination is with a booster. I mean, there is no doubt about that. Whether or not the CDC is going to change that, it certainly is on the table and open for discussion. I'm not sure exactly when that will happen. But I think people should not lose sight of the message that there's no doubt that if you want to be optimally protected, you should get your booster. The CDC is now recommending um, effectively against the J&J vaccine or at least favoring the Moderna and Pfizer vaccine. Do you think it was a mistake from the beginning uh, to recommend the J&J vaccine, given what was clearly the the, the lack of efficacy uh, relative to the others and now some of the other troubling aspects uh, that we've learned. Well, the, the shift and the change right now that occurred yesterday regarding a recommendation of a preference for the mRNA over J&J really was nailed down by the very recent data that there are more of these adverse events than was originally thought. Still, one can use the J&J, but what the CDC was saying that when you look at the overall data, particularly taking into account the safety data with regard to adverse event, that if you had the choice, favor the mRNA. Um, As you know, we are in holiday season and there are holiday parties. Uh, You've talked about getting together with your family uh, during the holidays and you've recommended testing and the like. At what point would you reassess that? And how would you think about holiday parties, even those with tested in environments and areas, as I said, by next week, if, if, you, if you do the, the math logarithmically, New York could be in a place where, where the positivity rate could cross 25, 30%. Well, you've got to just take things one step at a time and take a look at how things evolve. I mean, obviously, if you are vaccinated, your family's vaccinated, you have friends who are vaccinated and hopefully also boosted, You could still enjoy a social gathering generally in a home. You've got to be careful when you go into large public indoor spaces where there are a lot of people there. And that's the reason why you should be wearing a mask under those circumstances. But you've got to follow what's going on. 
if the counts keep going up and the, and the test positivity keeps going up, we may need to be more restrictive. But for right now, people who are vaccinated and boosted should feel reasonably comfortable. The risk is never zero. That's for sure. But what, under any what's the number? What's the number you reassess at? You, you, you just suggested, I think, perhaps for the first time that you would be forced to reassess if the numbers go up. At what level? Meaning, uh, you know, if, if you hear that it's yeah, the I, positivity rate is 25 percent in a particular or 30 percent, does that yeah. change? You know, I'm not going to give you a number. I think you just have to look at all the different factors. You've got to look at people who are getting infected. You've got to look at the seriousness of the infection, the rate of hospitalizations. All of those things you look at when you make a determination about how restrictive you are going to be. And those things just roll out in real time and you take it step by step. I can't give you a number now. Then all of a sudden that becomes the set number. And I don't have any real scientific data to feel to feel very comfortable about a set number. And that's the reason why I don't want to give it to you. The, the, uh, the J&J news is kind of a it's troubling and it's just in, in terms of, of the vaccine hesitant. Um, the messenger RNA vaccines have been given to billions of people. The, 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 the speed with which that technology was developed and the safety profile that we know so far is, is staggering. And the, the adaptability of the vaccine itself to, to new mutations, it's, it's amazing. I don't know, someone needs a Nobel Prize, obviously. Maybe they already got one. But. No, they will can, get it probably. Can you think of any type of disease pathology where we just don't know if there's a an effect a year from now or two years from now? I, I can't think, I mean, it has a very short half-life. The messenger RNA is gone. But it, can you think of any way where we just don't know whether there's something that we might say about messenger RNA six months from now, a year from now, two years from now? Because that, I think that feeds into the, the, uh, the vaccine hesitancy that we're still seeing. Yeah. It would be unprecedented to see something six months, a year from now, associated with any vaccine. We've never seen that. Usually you get reactogenicity, which occurs within 24 to 48 hours after a vaccine. Then there are adverse events. Almost all of those adverse events occur within 30 days or 45 days at the most. The idea of having an unexpected adverse event six months or a year later, I mean, nothing is impossible, but that would be absolutely unprecedented if that occurred. I want to ask you quickly about how you think the where you see the incubator for for these new mutant strains. We, we had one very smart person. I, I know, you know, Len Schleifer, he, he talked about the South African variant, which there were immunocompromised people there. We're all sort of one organism. And if we have a weak link in the chain, because some people, unfortunately, are having chemotherapy or, or you know that in the Gauteng province in South Africa, the instance of HIV infection is about 20%. So it's not a surprise that in that immunocompromised population that variants are emerging and they're emerging by leapfrog kind of a mutation, not slow evolution. And this is gonna keep going uh, until we deal with um, treating everybody, including the immunocompromised. So that's one way of generating mutants. Is that the way it happens or is it the unvaccinated, the, the millions of people as the, the virus is able to, to jump from person to person individually when the unvaccinated, is that where the mutant strains come or from both? Because I guess what I'm getting at is, well, 
people without immune systems, we can never make sure we vaccinate them till we're blue in the face and they could still generate a mutant. Well, I think the answer to your question is both. The number of mutations and amino acid substitutions that are seen in Omicron is really rather unprecedented to get those many and particularly that profile of mutations, some of which are really very unusual. It is more likely, although we don't know for sure, that that's exactly what happened, that the virus got into a person. You usually clear the virus from the body within a period of several days. If your immune system is severely compromised, it gives the virus the opportunity to continue to replicate in a person. And when you give it the opportunity to continue to replicate with a little bit of an immunological pressure on it to the extent that an immune compromised person can give that immunological pressure, that's how you get that very large and complicated constellation of mutations that we see with Omicron. That is the most likely scenario about how that happened, although there are some other theories, but that's the most likely. Dr. Fauci, we've um, been thinking that maybe Omicron is not going to be as deadly as we've seen with some of these others, but it does seem to spread very, very quickly. The numbers that the CDC released yesterday were pretty sobering. This idea that we're going to be getting 1.3 million cases, additional cases of COVID between now and Christmas. But the number that concerned me more was the idea that we could be seeing something like 15,000 deaths a week starting January 8th. That's their expectation. Is that because we think Omicron may be worse than anticipated, or is this Delta that we're still dealing with in terms of uh, these really severe outcomes? You know, that's a good question. So first of all, the data that we have from South Africa gives no indication that Omicron is more severe. There is some suggestion, and it really is only a suggestion, that it might be less severe. And the reason that that is suggested is that in South Africa, when you look at the ratio where there are the most cases, if you look at the ratio of hospitalization per number of cases, it's lower. The duration of hospital stay is less in number of days. The requirement for oxygen is a bit less. That could either be due to an inherent lack, not lack, but an inherent lower virulence or inherent lower pathogenicity of the virus, or it could be due to the fact that so many people, more than 80% of the people in South Africa have already been infected with beta or delta, so that when they recover, they have a considerable amount of protection, not against infection, but protection against serious disease. So that's the issue. One of the things we got to be careful about that if you start assuming, and it really is only an assumption, that it might be less severe in general, that can be completely overrided by the fact that it is so extraordinarily transmissible that even though you have a less of a percentage of people who would get hospitalized, when you have a larger number of people getting infected, the total amount of hospitalizations is going to be more. And that's just simple math. I mean, the reason I ask is I'm trying to figure out and gauge how concerned I should be. Um, I've heard of a lot more people in the last week who are fully vaccinated and even boosted who have gotten COVID. Um, is this right? A yeah, situation? and the, what, what we're hoping. No, no, that's a very good point. And, and we've got to admit, we are seeing a lot of breakthrough infections. 
And there are a number of reasons for that. One, there's waning immunity, which is the reason why we strongly recommend that when people are eligible to get boosted, that they get boosted. That's for sure. The somewhat uh, encouraging aspect of that is that when you're vaccinated and boosted and you get a breakthrough infection, the likelihood of you getting seriously ill is very, very low. Not zero, but it's very, very low. Dr. Fauci, uh, the White House was asked about a week ago whether effectively the government should provide uh, free antigen tests. This is something that many other countries in Europe have done. Look at what we've done over the course of time. We've quadrupled the size of our testing plan. We've cut the cost significantly over the past few months. And this effort to uh, to push uh, to ensure insurers are you're able to get your your tests uh, refunded means 150 million Americans will be able to get free tests. Though. Why not just make them free and give them out to, and have them available everywhere? Should we just send one to every American? Maybe. Then- the White House effectively scoffed at the idea. Uh, I know they have pushed for uh, insurance companies to pay for it. Do you think that's a mistake? Do you think that, that the government should be providing tests for free? Yes, and there are. There are a lot of tests that are for free. Obviously, some of them are, quote, reimbursable. But there's a distribution now of millions and millions of tests that are going to be available at various community and health centers that they will be truly free where you go in and get it. Also, I think it's not appreciated that the government has invested several billion dollars to make anywhere from 200 million to 500 million tests available per month. And that's a lot of tests. So I don't think you could say that the government scoffed at the idea about free testing. We are providing free testing, actually. I'm wondering for where we should uh, expend the most energy, I guess, on both, uh, on a a universal vaccine for all coronaviruses. That would be great. But then I think about therapeutics and whether there's a way, I mean, there's not that many genes, right, in the coronavirus genome. What do you estimate? total. It's, it's less than 20, isn't it? The functional proteins and... Yeah, it's 30,000 kilo... It's 30 kilo, kilobases. It's 30,000... And how many would that code for, actually? In, introns, as they say. No, I'm not sure exactly what it is. I don't want to... Well, it's not that many. So how would you do it? How would you do it? Would you... If you were going to develop a universal vaccine for all coronaviruses... How would you, does it have to be a surface protein that mutates quickly, or would you be able to, to target it against one of the essential genes in the, the actual, the, the way that the virus actually works? No, we are looking at all aspects. We're looking obviously very heavily at the spike protein, which is the most important, but there are other proteins, nuclear protein, capsid proteins. There are a number of proteins that are being looked at as targets. That is a major priority for us to develop a pan-coronavirus vaccine. In fact, I wrote a paper on that that came in out of the New England Journal of Medicine just a few days ago, describing the importance of that. So I'm pleased that you brought it up because it is a very high priority. Historically, we've had three outbreaks of pandemic or potentially pandemic coronaviruses in the last 19 years, uh, from 2002 with the original SARS So we really are absolutely uh, compelled, I believe, to make a pan-coronavirus vaccine, which we are working on. It seems like you could develop a therapeutic for some essential 
one of those essential proteins, whether it's a protease or a polymerase or something like that, that works in all of them uh, and, and, and is conserved. Right, but, it, but that's a treatment. Right. Yeah, but and? that's a treatment. You know, we don't want to get the audience mixed up about a vaccine or a I don't treatment. want to mix You're them right. up. But what's what's easier? People. What's easier to develop? And wouldn't, wouldn't that work? You could take a pill if you got any of them. Well, yeah, I, I, you know, you can't say before you do it what is more easy than the other. The easiest one is the one that you make it. <laughs> if you're right. successful, all of a sudden it automatically well, becomes maybe we'll easier. Do both. Maybe no, we we're can doing do both. both. Yeah, okay. we're going to do both. Absolutely. Dr. Fauci, uh, a lot of folks are getting on airplanes or planning to get on airplanes over the next week or two. Uh, they, of course, will be asked to mask. But given the transmissibility of Omicron, does it, does it change the dynamic? You know, a lot of people get on a plane, they wear a, a fabric mask. Does that, does that even work? Yeah, I mean, uh, there's no doubt that fabric masks work. I mean, there are different grades of masks that have different degree of capability of keeping out aerosol and droplet particles. I mean, obvious, the N95 is the best one, but they're relatively uncomfortable to wear. Not a lot of people wear them. But a regular surgical mask, as well as a cloth mask, is fine. And, and finally, would you jump on an airplane? Would I? If I had to, I would have no problem getting on an airplane. I'm vaccinated. I'm boosted. I know we have to wear a mask on an airplane. You wear a mask when you get to the airport. I do not have, in, given my state and what I do, I'm sort of locked in here in Washington, D.C., so I have no intention of getting on a plane. But if I had to... For family or other reasons, I would not hesitate to do that. I, I had one more more thought to ask because I I'm looking at Omicron and I'm hoping it's it's one of these uh, situations that we've seen in the past where um, as the, as we go forward, it gets less and less virulent and and people say that maybe we're going to see COVID endemic and something that that comes again and again. The difference between Delta and Omicron, if it really is less virulent, the stigma of getting COVID is still there. If it becomes a much less severe disease, should we be talking, let's say the next, not the next one, the next one after that, where it really is just like the flu at, at worst, do you think we'll still be talking about possible lockdowns and possible, all these things that we now, because of COVID, do we ever make the switch to, wow, this is something we're gonna have to live with and we can't you know, close down and, and not have holidays and, and do all these things with a much less virulent form of COVID. Sure, I think that's entirely conceivable that as it evolves, you're gonna see a situation where we adapt to it in the sense of it becomes less severe for the population. We hope that's the case. That could possibly have happened many, 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 many years ago with the original coronavirus that's our common cold coronavirus that perhaps Many years ago, they were pandemic viruses, which as things evolved over many years, they finally got into a situation where they were merely relatively insignificant common cold viruses. That is conceivable that that ultimately happens with the pandemic we're going through right now. And Dr. Fauci, um, I want to ask you about vaccine mandates, in part because it continues to be a national debate. Uh, Dr. Scott Gottlieb comes on this program regularly, and one of the things that he has said repeatedly is that he believes it's possible that those mandates have become counterproductive, not just towards getting people to take the vaccine today, but what it does to the psyche of Americans around taking other vaccines in the future.
I'm concerned about the political implications of vaccines and vaccination becoming another thing that divides us politically and culturally. Culturally, I think for a lot of uh, voters, they're not going to be able to make a distinction uh, or a ready distinction between the idea of a mandated vaccine and the idea of taking any vaccine. And I think we're going to see this uh, fight over vaccines bleed into other realms, uh, vaccinations for children, vaccinations for flu. And we're going to see vaccination rates decline across the country now that this is something that people think defines their political virtue. Do you agree with him? No, I, I don't know where he got that. I know Scott well. He's a good friend. I'm not sure what he was referring to. I mean, mandates, if that, that's a radioactive word. Requirements, people seem to respond better to that. They work. If you look at companies like United Airlines that require their, their people to get vaccinated, they're about 99% vaccinated. The federal government, the federal workers, we have about 97% vaccinated, 99% compliant. You know, one of the problems is we're never going to get out of this outbreak if we still have 50 million people who, for reasons that are still very, very difficult to understand, refuse to get vaccinated when you have a virus that's killed 800,000 Americans and caused 50 million infections. So if people still do not want to get vaccinated, sometimes you have to, for the common good, make requirements. Dr. Fauci. Thank you so very much. If we don't see you, uh, talk to you before the holidays. Um, have a great holiday, and we, we hope to see you soon. Stay safe. All right. Thank you. You too. Have a good holiday. Thanks. Next on Squawk Pod, a judge tosses a key bankruptcy protection for the billionaire family behind Purdue Pharmaceuticals, one of the biggest targets of opioid-related lawsuits. How much does the family still have, Sorkin? I'm not worried about the Sackler family in the least. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Methane management is a critical part of achieving a lower carbon future. Chevron is taking action to keep methane in the pipe. Their 2028 upstream methane intensity target is set to be 53% below the 2016 baseline. They're committed to evolving facility designs and operating practices. And they've trialed over 13 advanced detection technologies, including drones and satellites. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com methane. Up track, standby, Joe. Welcome back to Squawk Pod. The judge has thrown out Purdue Pharma's $4.5 billion bankruptcy settlement. I, I'm smiling a little, uh, Andrew, because I'm, I'm knee deep in dope sick, and I feel like I know this, uh, I know everything about this, this whole story, and it's like, wow, it's still going on. And I, you know, I see the actors as the, the, uh, the people that were in charge. What a, what a, how great is Michael Keaton, Sorkin? Is he not? He's it's pretty so, extraordinary. He's one, he, of the, he's one of the greats. He's one something. Of the real, really, uh, I mean, extraordinary. Uh, uh, it, it, it is so good. Um, anyway, the, the OxyContin maker declared bankruptcy after thousands of lawsuits uh, claimed that it pushed doctors to prescribe the opioid um, OxyContin. We know now uh, 10 milligram, but if you know you get breakthrough pain, you need 60. Hey, let's go. How can you get real relief 
with only 60. Let's go to 120 or even 240. That's really the way it happened. How much do the Purdue, how much does the family still have, Sorkin? It's, it's five at oh least. Oh my goodness. It? Uh-huh. So it's uh, I'm I'm not worried about the Sackler family in in the least in the yeah, least. The Sackler family. Uh, right. Purdue was. I'll chicken. get you. I'll get you their net worth in a second here. How'd you like, Andrew uh, and Becky? Have you seen it? I haven't. No. How'd you like I've where they go to? How'd you like where they go to see Comey, and he says, "Now what's this about chicken? What's the big <laughs> deal here about the uh, other What do you guys?" And they go, sir, it has to do with, with opioids and, and was that true? I mean, was that, that makes I, me... I think, the, I think the general story was true, yes. <laughs> what about the com- part- what about where Comey says, geez, what about, uh, that, that scared me. Made me wonder. That, that uh, part, I, I don't know. <laughs> but the settlement... Like, by the way, the... Yeah, go ahead. The family still has, well, that's fascinating. As of April 20, as of April 20, uh, 2021... Uh, the family had approximately $11 billion, $950 million in cash, $2.9 in marketable securities, a billion in international drug companies, a billion in real estate, a billion in private equity Whoa. investments. Yeah. Well, the settlement, and here's the issue, the settlement shielded members of the Sackler family uh, from being sued, and the new ruling said that the bankruptcy judge who approved the settlement didn't have the authority to grant the Sackler family that legal uh, protection. Uh, Purdue said it uh, would appeal, and I bet you they have some money for some good lawyers still. Um, so there may be a, oh, I never thought about that. Can there be a season two or three? Maybe there can be, because it's still going on. That's Squawk Pod for today and for the week. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Tune in weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 a.m. Eastern. And listen to this podcast. Squawk Pod is available for free where podcasts are available. Tell a friend to listen too. And thank you for listening. I'm Clara DeModi, and we'll meet you back here on Monday. Have a lovely weekend. We are clear. Thanks, guys. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.